goodness. Sorry, I know I was getting distracted. I was asking you about everything. No, and I hear the, the, some little cute sounds in the background. He is a yeah. he is a really cute baby. He is adorable. Thank you. He's really good. He's um he's a I mean we really can't complain. He's he has latched like he latched like a champ like as soon as they uh, as soon as he was born basically because that was one thing I requested. Um, you know, skin to skin immediately, and then I wanted I wanted him to latch immediately too. So he's been a good feeder ever since, and he's been a pretty good sleeper too. Charlotte so. Pinehart was born with a cleft lip and cleft palate, so for her, giving birth to a child without a birth defect, and specifically without a birth defect that would mean immediate feeding issues, was not a given. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. I met Charlotte while we were in graduate school together for genetic counseling at Sarah Lawrence College. The presentation Charlotte gave to our graduate class on cleft lip and cleft palate was my first education about this particular birth defect. By this time, Charlotte was 24 years old and looked like a completely normal and very pretty girl whose most distinguishing feature was to be the only person in our class with a southern accent. I was very surprised to learn that her last of many surgeries had been just a few years before at age 20. Charlotte and I later became good friends when we overlapped briefly while working at Wild Cornell Medical College, where Charlotte led the craniofacial team for over three years. Several years ago, Charlotte relocated back to the South to be closer to family, and this interview was our first chance to catch up since she gave birth to her first baby, Luca, two months ago. Charlotte now works at Emory in pediatric genetics, where she is also involved in the craniofacial clinic. She also works within the neonatal intensive care unit of Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. She is a genetic counseling supervisor and adjunct faculty at Emory. So what is a cleft lip and what is a cleft palate? So cleft lip and cleft palate are the um, improper fusion um, of the lip and palate during fetal development. Um, and these usually um, occur, um, or they, if they do occur, they occur in the first trimester between the 6th and 11th week. They can be severe or not as severe. So there can be bilateral where the both, both sides um, of the lip are affected or under both nostrils or um, can be unilateral, only one side. And in your case, what was it? Uh, mine was unilateral, left side. Okay. So left side is, for whatever reason, more common. Um, I don't quite understand. I don't think we know why it's more common, but it is more common for it to be affected um, on the left side if it is unilateral. Did your parents realize that you had a cleft lip and cleft palate after you were born at the time of delivery, or is there is that something that you can see on ultrasound or anything that they had an idea of before you were born? Um, so they didn't have an idea before I was born. My mom um, never received ultrasounds when she was pregnant with me. Um, that was just something that the doctor in my hometown um, didn't do. It was also from a small town where she didn't see a traditional OB. She saw the like family doctor in the town. Um, so they did not do ultrasounds. So it wasn't discovered until um, I was born. And um, they were very, very 
surprised, um, obviously, at birth and did not know what to expect. Had never heard of it, had never seen it. Do you have an older sibling? I do have an older sister. Okay, so yeah, I mean, your mom, your it wasn't the first baby for your for your parents. Mm, no. Um, yeah, and in fact, my parents were like convinced I was a boy. So when I came out, I was not only not a boy, but I had the cleft lip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Double surprise. So. <laughs> I mean, it is something um, to answer your question. It is something that you can see on ultrasound sometimes, um, depending on the severity. Um, some that aren't as severe aren't picked up on ultrasound. It also depends on how good your ultrasonographer is. Um, but they can be detected. It's, you you really can't detect cleft palate um, as well. But a lot of times if you see cleft lip, chances are the palate, you know, is involved as well. But sometimes there are cases that the palate's not involved. But yeah, you can, you can detect it prenatally. And you were saying your mom saw a family doctor, but uh, you were wait. You're younger than me. Like I was born in '81, but you're born in the mm-hmm. '80s, like early '80s, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it wasn't as common then to get ultrasounds unless there was a, a known issue. Well, I asked my mom about that too, and she said that her our family doctor, I guess maybe at that time or it was just him. He was. Um, they were. There was a concern that ultrasound could affect um, hearing. So um, she, dec- you know, she had no interest in driving hours away just to get an ultrasound because she thought maybe he was right and that having an ultrasound could cause hearing loss in infants or fetal fetuses. So anyway, so that's why she had no, I mean, she had no reason to believe anything was ever wrong. So it was just one of those things she didn't pursue. Was your father there in the delivery room when you were born too? He was, and um, he actually, after I was born, um, kind of gasped, and um, my mom told me, you know, held his face in his hands and walked out of the, the delivery room without saying anything to my mom. Oh my goodness, um, be terrifying for her. Yeah, so she, she knew something was wrong. She didn't know what was wrong. Um, but yeah, these are all things that she she never told me until recent years, Um she also attributes, um, or she never, she doesn't remember the name of um, the nurse at the hospital, but there was a nurse there that basically not shoved me in my mom's face, but she kind of got in my mom's face a little bit and just said, look at your baby, because mom didn't really want to look at me. Um, she had a hard time admitting that to me because she was afraid, she told me, she said, I was afraid that you were going to resent me for that, but um it was just all, you know, a big shock, and they they didn't know what to expect and didn't know what was going to be in store, and mom just kind of wanted to be in denial, I guess. But um, but she, she has more than once since then told me that she's always been really thankful for that nurse because it kind of snapped her out of her shock pretty quickly, and then she kind of went into, like, this mode of, okay, what do we need to do to survive and, you know, and got got to researching and, and asking around and meeting people and talking. So she said if it weren't for that, she didn't know how, you know, she was afraid that it would have been a long time before she reached that point and I could have missed out on some resources or, you know, not had care at an appropriate time to have the best outcome. If the nurse hadn't really f- forced yeah. her to confront it right away. yeah. Did the nurse, do you know if the nurse told her or the attending OB told her 
this is a cleft lip, cleft palate? Did they, they explain what it was or that it was treatable? So the, so the family doctor that I mentioned, um, so he, he delivered me and he's the one that told mom what it was. Um, and yeah, they did tell him, tell her it was repairable, but you know, you never can guarantee any kind of specific outcome because, you know, as, as adults, you've seen people with clefts that are more severely affected or their speech might not be very well. Um, you know, they might, they might still have issues with certain letters, that kind of thing. So it's hard to, it was hard for, for them to tell mom exactly how, how I would be as an adult or once it was like fully repaired. And that's still the same. I mean, you can't, you can't offer any parent any level of guarantee even now because a lot of it is case specific and you want to, you need diligent parents that are going to stay on top of their care and make the speech therapy appointments and make sure that they don't miss, you know, anything um, or any appointment really to allow for the best possible outcome. What did the family doctor tell your parents about, you know, besides the fact that it was repairable, like what the range of possible outcomes would be and what it would take to get there? So I don't know what all he told them. Um, He got them in touch with a craniofacial team about an hour um, from where we lived. I mean, I grew up in small town, Alabama, but um, we were about an hour away from Mobile and there was a craniofacial team there. So they, they got involved with several doctors at that time. And those were the same doctors I had, you know, pretty much my whole life. Um, I will say from an interesting genetics point of view, point of view, um, they did meet with a geneticist there. It was one of the only, it was the only geneticists in the state, I believe. And, um, mom and dad always wanted three children. That was one thing they had talked about since they got married. And, um, but they were told then that their chances of this happening again, was very, very um, high, and the chances of it being more severe or having a child with even, like, worse worse off um, than just having a cleft lip and cleft palate was very high, so they, they decided to not have any more children, so my dad got a vasectomy immediately. <laughs> wow. Do you know what, what was the, I mean, that's not consistent with empirical risk numbers that we know now, right? Do you mm. know, was they, were they do you know where that came from or if he was just uh, <laughs> not a com- not competent in his field? <laughs> I think it was just a, 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 you know, a result of the early 80s <laughs> and our lack of like knowledge. Um, but, you know, now, because I told mom and dad now that their chances were, was only about a 2 to 4% chance um, or 4 to 6% chance. Actually, it's about 2 to 3% chance, high, chance higher than you know, the risk for anything to go wrong in a pregnancy. Um, and she said, had they known those odds, they probably would have, you know, had a third. But, you know, they also weren't sure then about insurance and what would be covered, what wouldn't be covered. And, you know, it was too daunting for them to take the risk of having another child with something wrong and having those medical bills as well. So how did feeding work? Because feeding is uh, like, is a just having an infant with a cleft lip, cleft palate, like feeding is one of the first challenges. Is that right? Right. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, especially if the um, for babies that only have a cleft lip, which I've only seen a handful of times, when they have a cleft lip and cleft palate. Um, the palate makes it very difficult for feeding to occur without there being severe choking. So usually breastfeeding is out for moms, or feeding at the breast is out. I won't say breastfeeding, breast milk in general is not out, but it's difficult because of how babies, when they latch on, the nipple has to hit the roof of the mouth. Well, there's no roof of the mouth for a baby to baby to to touch or hit when they're feeding. So that that makes breastfeeding difficult, and then because there's you know kind of continuity between the mouth and the nasal cavity, there's a lot of risk for severe choking and regurgitation, um, nasal regurgitation. So that makes it very challenging. But there are special nipples now. I know Dr. Brown makes a special nipple for cleft lip and cleft palate, and um, the Haberman nipple is a pretty common nipple. Um, it's just an it's an elongated nipple that extends past the palate and goes to the back of the throat and allows for the milk to just go be swallowed that way instead of you know getting choked on. They didn't have such nipples whenever I you know in the eighties and or at least they didn't have anything like that close for mom to go get. So um, my my bottle was a glass Coke bottle with a um, goat's nipple on on it. That was the only thing around that was, so a feed store. So we, I grew up in a farming, a very heavily um, farming community, farming area. So there were, there were a lot of um, feed stores. And so that was the only place my mom could go to find nipples. And it was, she has since commented on how, you know, horrible that used to make her feel because you know other moms could just go to regular like grocery stores or a walmart and get supplies and she had to go to a feed store to find you know to get nipples but she also said whatever it took you know to feed me she was willing to do but she didn't have a lot of sympathy for (laughs) something so other some some other mothers uh complaints and issues (laughs) yeah exactly in being told um, those incorrect recurrent risks, mm-hmm. did the geneticists also give them any information about, you know, like what could have caused it initially? Did he say it's random genetic factors or environmental factors or didn't know or did folic acid come up? Uh, folic acid did not come up because I have since talked to mom about that. Um, one interesting thing that has always struck me, and I've never told mom this because I would never want her to feel guilty, Um so having an older sister, she's admitted that, you know, she took care of herself when she was pregnant with my sister, but she ate whatever she wanted. Um, when she got pregnant with me, she really wanted to eat healthy and said that she ate, you know, salads and a lot of leafy green vegetables every day. Well, leafy green vegetables are very high in vitamin A and vitamin A has been linked to an increased risk in cleft lip and cleft palate. I've always kind of wondered if that was the cause, but um, Hmm. no, the geneticists did not attempt to pinpoint a cause for mom. Um, I think they, they did say multifactorial basically. Um, I don't know if that, that word was used exactly, but that was mom's understanding when she started explaining it to me. Um, I did have a distant relative on my dad's side that, had um, a cleft lip. They called it a hair lip back then. I mean, this this relative was so distant. Dad didn't even know, you know, 
has vague memories of her and didn't even, no one could ever remember if she had a cleft palate or just a cleft lip, but they, they knew that she did have, you know, the lips. So then they kind of told my dad, then it likely came from his side. Um, but then there was really never any way to tell that. So I think my dad had, I know mom told me later, dad had a lot of guilt from that thinking that it, it was his fault, but I'm hoping since I've gone into my profession, I've helped, you know, relieve them of those anxieties and guilt. <laughs> also, that sounds like something where, again, like the empiric risks would say that that's a distant enough relation that it wouldn't even really factor in because right. he probably shares such a small fraction of his DNA with his cousin who may or may not have had a cleft lip or cleft palate. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, the idea of leafy green vegetables eating something really healthy that <laughs> could yeah, have an no, adverse right. of, but I mean leafy green vegetables are also full of folate right which, yes. which should reduce the risk <laughs> yes you would think so that's what I when I'm and I was in craniofacial clinic on Friday and I that's part of my spiel that I give families whenever um especially if they're thinking about having more children and um an increase in folic acid has been shown to decrease the risk of cleft lip and cleft palate. It certainly doesn't eliminate the risk because there are certainly women who take it and still have babies with cleft lip and cleft palate. But it's important that I think one thing that women don't realize is that folate should be in your system at least six months prior to conception. So if they start taking it when they get pregnant, that's like, you know, too late. Yeah. (laughs) So... Um, I always tell my patients that if they're of reproductive age and planning, even if they're not really technically planning to have more children, but if it's a possibility, I always always ask them if that's been medically secured or not when they tell me they're not trying to have more children. Medically secured. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then I told that to the geneticist I work with Friday. She's like, I like the way that's phrased. <laughs> so I'm saying medically fixed. Yeah. <laughs> For years now, since I've, you know, wasn't necessarily trying to have children, but knew that it was possible because I wasn't abstinent, um, that I just take a prenatal vitamin every day as my regular multivitamin. Mm-hmm. Which which a prenatal vitamin would just have more folic acid in it than a standard women's daily, even though that also has folic acid in it. Yes, but it is safe to also take a folate supplement, even if you are taking a prenatal vitamin. So I know some women have done that too, so... Because that was something I thought I would do potentially if I ever decided to have children. And then I got pregnant without trying. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of missed the boat on that one. So I just <laughs> was hoping my prenatal vitamin was good enough. Your, your lifelong self-supplementation <laughs> payoff. Yeah. At what age did you realize that you had, um, you know, that you were different, different? from other children in 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 having this and how was that? I don't know at what point you had different surgeries and how different you looked from other children at different ages. So I was probably in second or I think I was in second grade um, when I started asking questions because I started getting made fun of at school and I didn't understand what they were seeing. Um, And it wasn't that my parents, you know, didn't talk about it at home. I just, they never made me feel different. So I didn't feel different at home. But then when I got to school, you know, my face looked different than the other kids. And some people would, yeah, I would point or ask questions. Um, and so that's probably the youngest age I, I can look back on. And, and that's when I realized like, you know, I 
had something wrong with my with my face. Um, had you already had any surgeries done? I had. Point? Yeah, so it's interesting that you ask because Luca will be nine weeks tomorrow, and Mom reminded and me this your, morning. That's your newborn baby. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's my newborn baby. Um, Mom reminded me this morning that I was just three weeks older than he is now when I had my first surgery. So I can't imagine having to go through that. Um, but so I did have my lip repaired, um, when I was 12 weeks, it was repaired, repaired closer to a year of age. Um, but then I had, those are initial repairs and then you have subsequent repairs and then you have further repair after like the face, face reaches skeletal maturation. Um, cause you can't, you have to hold off on some of the repairs cause the, the, the bones just, the structure's not mature enough. Initial repairs were functional, but didn't have uh, like a positive outcome in terms of functional in the short term, but not final in terms of cosmetic effect. Yeah. I mean, the lip, sometimes the lip repairs can be, once they're corrected at that young age, because it's the lip that's repaired first, always. The palate, you have to wait um, until, you know, they're a certain age to undergo that repair. But the lip sometimes can be corrected that early and never, never touched again. It just goes back to some, some cleft lips are more severe than others. Okay. So. And how did yours, how did yours um, fit into more or less severe? I don't think my cleft lip was as severe as, certainly not as severe as some of the like, patients I've seen and stories I've read about. Um, but I think it was a lack of, you know, they didn't have the same mechanisms and enhancements and ways of doing surgeries then that they do now. So I think that's why. I mean, and what I had done later was much, was very minor. It was just, I think there was, I had the scar on my face um, and that's what I think a lot of kids noticed and made fun of the most. Um, and then once I got older and I was having, you know, some of my teeth didn't come in, so I was missing teeth, that's, that brought on a whole other level of bullying. But um, the, the scar has obviously faded now because it's, you know, it's barely it has aged with me. <laughs> yeah, but at the time when it was when I was having surgeries and having a lot of work done, it wasn't as, you know, faint. And so it was a lot more noticeable. So I think that's what kids were seeing. So that's second or third grade. Um, what did you look like physically? Or what did you feel like your face looked like as you were later in elementary school, middle school and high school? It was actually not until um, my late 20s that I really kind of dealt with that. I had a lot of, I kept a lot of things buried inside and had a, had a really major self-image issue. And I wouldn't say it's completely like healed and resolved, but has gotten a lot better. Um, but I struggled for a long time with, I don't know, just not feeling pretty, not feeling, um, normal, you know, wishing I had like a normal face. I'm very like particular in pictures and not wanting certain angles or profile views. Uh, I like to be on certain sides in pictures because to me, you know, when I see a picture of myself, even today, I, I see all the imperfections from the cleft, but I don't see what other people see. I don't think because I think that's part of having a plastic surgeon your whole life. <laughs> you kind of learn to like pick up on some imperfections that most people don't see. But, um, 
and you're always seeing, I, I feel like probably you're seeing, everybody's to some extent critical of yes, themselves in yeah. pictures, but then mm-hmm. you're seeing what you look like now, but also your memories of how you've looked like at all these earlier stages. Yeah, <laughs> and how I perceived myself. And yeah, I was, I, it was, um, it was something that I actually sought help for finally in my late 20s that helped a lot. Those self-esteem issues and how you saw yourself, how do you feel like that impacted um, your time in school and just socialization growing up and like looking back, knowing what you know now at this point in your life? Is there anything that you think could have been done differently or advice that you would give to um, a girl your age going through that or a mother who has a daughter with a cleft lip, cleft palate? Um, you know, I've always, I struggled with admitting that I had self-image issues like in my late 20s that was attributed to like my cleft lip and cleft palate because to an extent I felt guilty because I had a great family growing up that I was surrounded by love and you know, encouragement, you know, I was always encouraged to, that, and told that I could do anything I wanted to. I was never, they never let me use it as a crutch or, or anything. So I felt guilty for still having a hard time with it. Cause it's like, how do you, if you've got, if you've had every opportunity and had two parents that, you know, loved you, told you you were beautiful, told you you were pretty, that, you know, that kind of thing, what more could they have done kind of thing? So it's hard. It's always hard for me to answer that question about because I've had moms ask me that like what do you what do you recommend I do and you know I don't I don't know because because I had all the things that I could I would encourage mothers and parents to provide for their child Um, Mm -hmm. you know I don't know how you can break someone or help someone have a better self-image or self-esteem it's probably also hard to sort out just every single adolescent girl mm-hmm. goes through mm-hmm. some of that and is going to have specific issues that make it more complicated. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, I think that my biggest, what hurt me the most is looking back, you know, in high school and, and in, well, not so much college, but in high school, I didn't date very much. So I always equated my cleft with not with like guys not being attracted to me. And so I think to some degree, it caused me to settle for less than what I deserved, just because when if I got any male attention, it was, um, you know, I was just surprised or I don't know if I should say thankful is the right word or just you know when you're young and you're female Mm -hmm. and you're wanting attention from the opposite sex and you get it um then you like makes you feel I guess better about yourself so I don't know it was it took going through a divorce and seeking therapy to kind of work through all these things But, but again I can't I would never and I can't attribute that to not feeling like my parents provided me with a a loving home and, you know, letting me know that I deserved the absolute best. It was just a, you know, something within, within me. It sounds like, I mean, tell me if you think this is right, that maybe even just, you know, the parents who, who ask you that maybe it's just even just acknowledging that regardless of how wonderful a job they do of raising their child and giving them all the 
all the love and support that they need, that this is just going to be something that's hard for them to go through, that it is going to be a difference and it's going to be a piece of their self-esteem and self-image to work through as they get older. And there's kind of no way around that. Right. I've also always told families too, that while I dealt with that too, you know, I'm also very tall. So I'm I'm five, five, 10. I think at one point I was a little bit taller. I think I'm shrinking, (laughs) but I was already, (laughs) yeah, I was also very tall, very young and I got made fun of for that. So, I mean, kids are going to make fun of kids. They'll, They'll choose something. Yeah. So if it weren't, I mean, if I didn't have my cleft lip, I mean, maybe I would have had self-image issues over, you know, my height. I don't know. You know what I mean? It wasn't until I was much older that I I liked being tall and I wasn't so, like, awkwardly lanky looking. <laughs> when you're younger, like, being tall is something else that would make it harder to get male attention from guys who are a foot shorter than you are, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I was also going to say, too, like, my dating issues in, like, high school could be a lack of... <laughs> Selection. I I, I mean, is it fair to say perhaps that you weren't meant for small town Alabama? Yes. I've never, I've never been to Alabama. I want to go some time to visit you, (laughs) but uh, maybe you're just like meant for bigger things. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what it was. So you recently, you alluded to the fact that you recently had a baby. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, just kind of backing up, we talked. Uh, we touched on the empiric recurrence risk for cleft lip plus palate. Mm-hmm. So what, um, and as a genetic counselor, of course, like um, <laughs> when you got pregnant, like what did you know your risk to be of having a baby with either a cleft lip or a, um, a cleft lip and cleft palate or a cleft palate? Yeah. So I, um, when the day that we took our pregnancy test, um, I, one of the first things I did after we saw the positive sign is I ran upstairs immediately um, to look at the app on my phone to figure out about how far along I was because I knew that I knew what stage in development the lip and palate were forming. So it was on my mind immediately. Um, So whenever the sun, we took our pregnancy test on a Sunday and it just so happened that the next day I was going to be about five weeks pregnant. Um, So I I knew that I was approaching the the time period and um, I I got really nervous um, and then I had to kind of get myself together and it's funny how I've participated in craniofacial clinics now for five six years, six years. And so, and I say the same thing all the time because I get asked that question all the time, but it took me a minute to kind of, you know, wrap my head around it and the numbers. So I had a new appreciation for kind of digesting that information, but I knew from, you know, the literature that my chance of having a child with a cleft lip and cleft palate was about four to 6%. And, um, uh, so I kept playing that over my head and telling myself that's a 94 to 96% chance that everything's going to be okay. But it was certainly um, something that I was worried about um, from the beginning and during the pregnancy. And um, I even had coached Bobby throughout the pregnancy. Even after we had our first ultrasound and our anatomy scan where we got pretty clear images of the lip. Um, 
I was relieved, but you know, I, t- I kept telling Bobby, my husband, that the whole time that that didn't eliminate the chance for a cleft palate. Um, cause when cleft palates, um, occur, uh, without a cleft lip, it's actually a more likely chance that it's a genetic risk or gen- related to genetics. Um, cleft lip and cleft palate together is more likely multifactorial. Um, and so I mm-hmm. had instructed him in the delivery room to, because, <laughs> you know, a lot of cleft palates, when they happen as just a cleft palate, sometimes they're not detected at birth or even at the birth uh-huh. hospital. It's when the moms get home and, you know, are calling the pediatrician with difficulties feeding or it's at the first well visit for the baby when the pediatrician does the full, you know, a full exam, even though they are supposed to be evaluated by a pediatrician at the hospital, um, you know, without having really reason, I don't think it's routine for all pediatricians to stick their fingers or stick their hand in the mouth to check the palate. Um, some do, some don't. And so some, some babies with cleft palates aren't detected for, I mean, I've known, I had one patient who was, the baby was like a week old before the palate was detected. Granted, that wouldn't have been a really severe cleft palate. Because the baby must have been feeding certainly can have a, to some extent. To some, some extent, yeah. yeah, to make it a week. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I had told Bobby, you know, as soon as Luca came out to, you know, put a glove on and put, you know, put his hand in the mouth. So, and we, you know, we did that. And we also had the, our OB do that as well because um, she knew, she knew I was very aware, so and concerned about that, but he was not mm-hmm. born with a cleft lip or cleft palate, so not even, you know, anything wrong, actually. <laughs> did So how did you feel when, you know, he was born with no problem? Like, obviously, you, you know, you told yourself 94 to 96% chance not to have mm-hmm. this issue, but, I mean, mm-hmm. besides being relieved, there was there any part of you that was surprised because you tried to prepare yourself so much for this, this possibility? Yeah, I think I... I actually told someone last week that I get overwhelmed with feelings of relief even still now just like watching him sleep or watching him eat and with our line of work like he everything every test we did you know then the hearing screen in the hospital um every evaluation exam he's had, he, everything in his newborn screening, everything just keeps getting checked off. Like he's just a clean bill of health. And it's not that I didn't think that that was a possibility, but I think the whole time between my personal experience and then my, my professional line of work, I, I just, not that I was convincing myself that something was going to go wrong, but I was just, I think I was preparing myself. And then now that I have a completely healthy baby, it's like I've had more of a shock accepting that, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, oh, wait. You've definitely interacted with more babies and children with problems than not. Because if, yes. they, get, if they get checked off, like Luke is getting checked off, you never meet them. Yeah, you exactly. Meet them if there's an issue. Exactly. So I was, I, I'm very thankful and feel very blessed because we see what can happen and what can go wrong. So you mentioned that you needed a lot of different surgeries at different points mm-hmm. um, with some surgeries happening later mm-hmm. um, after the bones had matured, all mm-hmm. the bones in the face had matured. Walk mm-hmm. me through the timing of those different surgeries that you had done over the course okay. of your life. 
So as I mentioned, you know, lips and still to this day are, are repaired very early, like around three months um, of age. And then the palate is repaired usually around a year of age, anywhere from like nine to 12 months. Um, a lot of that is dependent upon weight gain. So in order for a baby to be put to sleep and receive general anesthesia, they have to be a certain weight. Um, so that's, that's why it's crucial that babies gain weight adequately or cleft babies gain weight adequately. But then um, after that, those initial surgeries, there's a, a long gap in between the next surgery. So I think my, my next surgery was in the second grade. So what am I, like seven or eight years old uh, uh -huh. in the second grade? And that was when um, it's common at that time for babies to undergo bone grafts. So there's a lack of bone in the palate of the mouth um, as a result from the cleft palate. So sometimes now that is replaced with... Um, I, there's different ways to, to fill that, um, bone. For me personally, I had bone removed from my hip and placed in my mouth. Um, they do it, I've, I've heard of them doing it from the ribs. Um, and then I've heard of them, I guess there's a synthetic bone that they can use now. So you, you're not putting a scar on another part of the body. So I had that only to two years later realize that they didn't get enough the first time. So I underwent another bone graft bone graft around the fourth grade and so rehabbing least done was this like part of your summer vacation yes yeah, so my dad being a <laughs> school teacher was a you know we never could miss school so my surgeries were always scheduled around Christmas break and summer so sometimes I grew to hate those <laughs> yeah um but anyway so um orthodontic care um so I was in braces and or I'm not full on braces because obviously I had I was still losing like baby teeth, but I was at least under the care of an orthodontist from the time I was in second grade until I got my braces off my senior year of high school. That was going on. And then I didn't undergo any further surgeries on my face until I was like 16 and 17. Um, I underwent complete nose reconstruction where they like basically broke my nose, repositioned it on my face, thinned it down, tried to contour it to make it look like my nostrils were even, had that done around 16 or 17. I also had to have my jaw repositioned. What was it like right after having that nose surgery done? Like, were you going to school as a 16 or 17 year old with a bandage on your face or were you home or what was that process like? I was home. So <laughs> yeah, it was summer. So, but I had this stint on my nose and I had tape all over my face. My eyes were black. I was very swollen. So anytime you have any kind of nose reconstruction, the, um, it's, you know, you're, you're facing like six months of swelling. Um, so actually it was, it was the senior, the summer before my senior year of high school. Cause now I remember my parents didn't order, we didn't order my senior portraits cause you know, senior portraits, I don't know what the, this was the case. And that's it's giving, giving me a little yeah. flashbacks to yes. Like pose, posing in the grass with an elbow <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or in a tree on a tire swing. <laughs> yeah. Well then yeah. the school does some too, like the professional looking ones or whatever. So, um, mm. those were done, like, I want to say in August or September going into like my senior year. And I just had my nose surgery that June. And so you could very much tell I was still swollen. So my parents actually opted not to order any of those prints. So I didn't, I actually had my senior portraits done the following, like it was actually after graduation when I had senior portraits done. All this is like coming back to me now. Was that, was that something where people exchanging pictures at school and you didn't have any to exchange because 
Yeah, actually, yes. Because they were like, my parents didn't want to order them because my <laughs> face is swollen, as you can see, as I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, gosh, yeah. So that, that I don't remember that being as hard. I guess to, I don't know. I feel like was that well, maybe. I mean, tell me if this is right. That was like a final surgery where you were starting to have a positive cosmetic outcome and maybe you were old enough to realize that this was something that you you know you'd go through and have like really good results once you once you yeah. were done healing yeah exactly and then but I will say I chose to have an additional nose revision in college um, so once I made the decision that I for sure wanted to go into the medical field I opted to have additional reconstructive surgeries just because I wanted to have the best possible outcome and I wanted to be um a resource for families, I guess, um, or something that families could look at and have hope for. So they could see someone that had been through it. Um, and, you know, so I, I opted to have additional surgeries. And I, like I said earlier, I, I had a plastic surgeon that was a perfectionist, which, you know, you want your plastic surgeon to be a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, and so he, he always wanted to do more. And, and I actually never had the last nose revision that he wanted to do. I did reach a point in college where I was just done. Um, between the, the nose revisions and then um, my, so I had mentioned earlier that I was in braces until senior year of high school. So um, most people with cleft palates, um, they are missing some teeth and I was missing two permanent teeth. So your my um, lateral incisors, so the two teeth on either side of your front teeth. Um, never came in. I had all my baby teeth, but I, I was missing those two teeth. Um, and so we knew that we were going to have to decide if we were going to do a bridge or implants or, you know, some kind of false teeth. And um, what we also came to realize after all those years of orthodontic work, my, the roots of my two front teeth basically deteriorated because um, there was so much between the surgeries and the, the shifting of my teeth because we had thought about moving the teeth I had forward and then reshaping them to make them look like the teeth they were like supposed to be in that position. Um, so, but then we decided against that. And, um, anyway, so I made the decision in college for, to undergo another outpatient surgery and have my two front teeth removed, pulled. And so, um, I had to wear a retainer with four front teeth in them for a while until that healed. And then I, I chose to have, um, implants. So my my front four teeth are implants and with crowns. So, and that, I will say that was the only thing, um, not covered by insurance for my family. So every surgery I ever had, every doctor's appointment I ever had was covered. Um, I also, my parents got married young and were in college while I was growing up and didn't really have professional jobs, so to speak, until later. I mean, my dad was a school teacher, but he didn't get his like master's until I was older. So we were we were eligible and met the requirements for Medicaid. Even though my parents had Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance, they still were approved for Medicaid. So that did help pay for all of my surgeries. However, um, the implants that I chose to have and receive in college, because they were considered strictly cosmetic, and there was not a need because there were other options that I could have, other cheaper options I could have gone to um, for my teeth. Um, insurance didn't pay for those, so that my parents, uh, out of all the surgeries I ever had, they were only out only out the expense of the 
the implants and the crowns, and I think that was around four to five thousand dollars. That's another question that I get asked in clinics sometimes. Is actually I got asked this Friday. So I met with a, a family on Friday, um, an Indian couple who had had difficulty. Um, well, I can't say they had difficulty conceiving because I actually asked that question. She didn't have infertility. She was 38 before they ever decided to have children. And because of her age, they decided to go through IVF. And so they had one embryo implanted and then had twins. So they had identical twins, uh, two boys. And then one boy had a cleft lip and cleft palate. And um, she, I, one thing I always ask, I don't really tell every family that I meet my personal story. Sometimes I do. It just kind of depends on how I'm feeling. And, and I don't know, it's just a feeling I get when I'm in with a patient, if I disclose that information, but this was one family I did feel comfortable. And just, I could tell the way the conversation was leading. I, I was comfortable to disclose that. And, um, they couldn't, they, they had not met an adult with, um, they had met other kids and other families with children with cleft lips and cleft palates but had not had known another adult. So they, you know, I said, well, now you know me. And um, so the mom was actually asking a lot of questions about that. And so I told her, you know, um, that it was a, it was a choice I make. Cause I always get asked how many surgeries I, I had. And that's kind of a, it's a tough question. Cause like I said, I opted to have more surgeries than were probably medically necessary per se, but I wanted to have, I want it to look as normal, and I say that in quotes, <laughs> as possible. So it's, it's interesting. I don't think I've heard before, I didn't remember, that it was after deciding to go into the medical field that you really felt, um, I don't know if I should say pressure, but just like wanted to be a good example or felt like you would be the poster child for someone yeah. with a cleft lip, cleft palate, and what the outcome could be, and that that was really actually a motivating factor to have more cosmetic surgeries done just because that's the field you were going into. Right. I would say it, there was no pressure whatsoever. It was more, it was, it, like you said, it was a motivation to just, you know, that instinct and desire I have to want to help families and help people and provide a sense of hope to other families who are going through this, that, you know, there are days in the beginning where it seems very dark and gloomy, but it does get better. And, you know, I always, you know, focus in on the point that cognitively patients with cleft lip and cleft palate are normal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's what they do have wrong um, is repairable, unlike some other things that babies can be born with out of the thousands of other conditions and defects. And are there online resources that you give to families or that maybe, you know, in clinic, you don't need to, but people listening to the podcast, um, like trying to visualize this, Mm -hmm. um, are there any online resources related to cleft lip and cleft palate that you think are particularly well done or helpful? Yes, I do. I, you know what I've found because I was a part of it as an adult, um, as well. Um, Facebook has been a great platform for, to introduce families going through the same thing. And, and I think that's the first place a lot of, a lot of, uh, families go to, um, to, to get support and find out, you know, how, how best to deal with it. But obviously, you know, the smile train is a great organization, um, that provides repair. Um, cleft advocate is another great resource. Um, it's cleftadvocate.org. Um, the, you know, there's clefsmile.org. Um, that's another great 
uh, website and resource for um, um, for families, the Cleft Lip and Palate Association. Um, all all of these are great great resources that I always encourage families to to peruse as they're you know searching Dr. Google. One thing that you might find interesting, just because I'm a genetic counselor, so when I, we were at Sarah Lawrence, and I was rotating in Jersey. Um, I made the comment to the counselor that I worked with that I was also born with a heart murmur. And so she immediately said, well, have you ever been tested for George, you know, 22Q? And I looked at her, and I was like, no. And then she was like, well, you know, the kind of the main... Um, main symptoms are like that you see in DeGeorge are cleft lip and cleft palate or not main I should say but two of the symptoms that you see with DeGeorge two, two features anyway yeah two features are like key features yeah are cleft lip and cleft palate and then heart defects um and she said well let's just test you and I was like okay you know and so we drew my blood and like sent it off and I so I commuted by um, New Jersey Transit to that rotation from New York, from Manhattan. And uh-huh. um, I got on the bus back to Manhattan that day, and I just broke down in tears and called my mom and, like, sobbed because I was, I don't know, I was scared. Um, I mean, I guess I had a new appreciation for genetic testing. Um, I love our profession, and I think our profession provides a lot of helpful um, a lot of help for a lot of people, especially with, you know, whenever you do receive genetic testing, if you can know beforehand if you're at risk of developing, um, like, certain cancers or something, and you can take the initiative beforehand to have proper screening and all that. Um, I was not, I, I was actually scared to get that result back because I was, I was afraid I was going to be labeled with, with a syndrome or having something. And it was one of those things where I'd gotten through the first I don't know, I can't remember how old I was, 26, 27 years. You know, why Why did I just jump to that without really even thinking about it and processing it? Um, it came back negative, by the way. Well, your your supervisor uh, <laughs> made it made it sound like a casual and easy thing to do. I'm, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that, uh, that, you know, your supervisor would have suggested it in kind of such an offhand, cavalier way. Well, and, you know, I was married at the time. And we were talking about, I think in the course of that like week, um, I I would say I I loved the rotation and I got really close with the counselor that I was working under at that time. We were talking about recurrence risks and, you know, if I were to have something like that, then my recurrence risk would, would draw, you know, would increase drastically from four to 6% to 50%. So that's a huge difference. Plus, plus a risk for other features associated with the George. Yes. Yeah, and so um, so I think we both kind of left that day, and then when we got back to when I got back to clinic the next day, we both were kind of like, "Whoa, what did we do yesterday?" <laughs> like, why didn't we kind of you know take a step back and talk about this a little bit more? So she was she it was almost as if she was receiving genetic testing herself when we were waiting for those results to come back from Genzyme. <laughs> so anyway, they came back negative. I didn't have that, so. Um, I was relieved, but for people listening, so DeGeorge syndrome is caused by a small deletion on chromosome number twenty-two, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yep. The long so, arm. And people can have uh, cleft lip, cleft palate, um, heart defects, cognitive difficulties, mm-hmm. but there's a really broad range, right? So it yes. could be possible that someone, like I think now in a pediatric workup, 22Q testing would just be part of it. The first thing you would do is part of a really standard workup, yes. right? With cleft lip, cleft yeah. palate. So yeah. we, we, you know, order standard of care microarray for all of our children that come through with cleft lip and cleft palate. Um, to see if this is something that is, you know, the cause. It's rarely the cause, but just to kind of just to look to see. Because um, yeah, like you said, the 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 range of symptoms can be very broad. I mean, there are adults walking around that don't even know they have that. But when you have children, you're not guaranteed to have the same um, same severity as you. So you know. Parents can be very mildly affected, and a child can be very severely affected. I worked at Weill Cornell Medical College mm-hmm. in the cranial facial clinic, and for over three years. Mm-hmm. And then you've worked uh, at Emory and Pediatrics, and in the cranial facial clinic for several years now. Do you see anything where you just wish that there is um, better general understanding among the public? or doctors about certain aspects surrounding cleft lip, cleft palate, or other craniofacial issues? So we're the only craniofacial team in Georgia. And so we have patients that come from very rural like areas in Georgia. South Georgia is still very much old South. And um, I recently, believe it or not, this I, my heart goes out to this family. The baby was born with achondroplasia and cleft lip and cleft palate completely unrelated. Um, I mean, achondroplasia is, is genetic, you know, obviously results from a new mutation. And, but um, cleft lip and cleft palate, you know, didn't, had nothing to do with that. But um, she was from very, very south rural Georgia, very sweet young mom, not very educated, but a very sweet mom and um, was trying very hard to learn. Oh, I mean, she'd probably learned more about anything in a short, a short amount of time than she'd ever learned in her life. But, um, the hospital where that baby was born, they were still encouraging the mom to breastfeed, 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 because breast is best. And, um, the baby was choking. And I mean, there have been babies that, with severe cleft palates that, I mean, you can choke so bad. I mean, babies risk choking to death, you know, um, that's how bad it can get. And she, she kept telling me, she said, I, my, my gut kept telling me to quit feeding him this way, but she said, I didn't know how else to feed him, you know, and I was overwhelmed and I was scared and I knew that my baby needed, needed food and, but I didn't have anywhere or anyone to talk to. So I think the feeding is the main, I think for the most part, medical professionals are, familiar with cleft lip and cleft palate now, but where the area that needs the most, um, educational, you know, understanding is with the feeding. Especially now that, I mean, in the eighties, uh, formula was either acceptable or encouraged or thought superior. And now yeah. there's such a push for breastfeeding and the hospitals have maybe like overdone campaigns around mm-hmm. breast is best. <laughs> so then like reality, reality bumps up against the breast is best campaign. Yeah, I think uh, just fed is best. <laughs> yeah, there has to come a time where, yeah, yeah, breast is, is good. It certainly doesn't mean that formula is bad, you know, and just making sure your baby is getting adequate nutrition is what's most important. So I've seen, I've seen, I've read things about that where 
let's let's take it back. Not let's not say breast is best because that implies to women who can't breastfeed or have a difficulty with their milk supply that implies that they're not as good of a mom. I feel like um, if they don't breastfeed, so let's say like fed is best. <laughs> However you choose to feed <laughs> is your you know your call. So, but yeah, I think. I think for the most part, we've come a long way since the early 80s and even before that um, with the help of, you know, the Internet and just overall recognition and and awareness. But um, there's still a lot of uncertainty on how best to feed a child with a cleft. And I think for doctors and OBs that practice in rural places where they don't, for the most part, they probably see healthy, straightforward pregnancies and births. Um, when they do get one that comes through that has something wrong and it and that it does, you know, one that has difficulty with feeding, that they, they don't know how to best advise. And you can never, you know, one thing I've learned in our line of work, because I think, you know, we certainly serve in um, sometimes uh, a less educated population, you can never discredit a mother's instinct and tuition. This mom that I'm telling you, I mean, she might have not uh, she might not have had more than a high school diploma, but she she was able to discern like she knew what was best for her child and but there's this pressure that the medical community knows better. So um, I, I have a respect for moms. I mean, doesn't just because you don't go into the medical field doesn't mean you what what you know and feel is right isn't right or correct. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and oh, sharing yeah, your story. Take care. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. If you enjoy listening to patient stories, please take two seconds to rate us on iTunes and consider taking 30 more seconds to leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews really do help us to reach more people and to share your stories with a broader audience. You can also easily share any of our episodes through social media. You can find Gray Genetics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.